Thank you, worship team, and thank you, families who read the Christmas story for us. It's, we're going to get multiple exposure to uh, the Christmas story this morning in the scriptures, but I want to hone in on a couple that I've, n- I've never preached on this passage before. We're going to be in Luke chapter 2 today. So if you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn there, about the middle of the chapter, Luke chapter 2, and we're going to hear the Christmas story from the perspective of some people who were waiting, some people who were waiting and who were wearied. Luke chapter 2, and if you don't have a copy of God's Word, we'll put it up here on the uh, overhead. We're going to start in verse 22. By the way, I'm Tommy. I'm the lead pastor here. Welcome to Grace Life. So thankful that you chose to come and celebrate Christmas Eve with us. It's a joy and an honor to have you here. And uh, I know you're going to hear it probably multiple different times this morning, but we have a special gift for every family to take home to remind you of the biblical truth that we actually hear sung over the radio and when you're shopping and maybe you're at your favorite coffee shop. Talk about that a little bit more in a minute. But uh, Allison and Jason Best have a really unique gift with wood, and so they have made some ornaments for us, uh, and we want every family to take one home. It's just a gift. You got, uh, you got another week to hang that up on your tree to be reminded of what we're going to talk about today. So uh, let's pray, and then we'll read the scripture together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the truth that we are a weary world and waiting That's the truth. Every single person in this auditorium, every single person watching from home, every single person who's watching this recorded message years from now, Lord, we we all have this in common. We're waiting on something. Not all waiting is bad, but often waiting can be be depleting. It can be exhausting. It can be very wearisome for lots of reasons. I'm thankful, Lord, that the, the waiting is over for your people. You have sent the answer to our deepest, most profound problem. We are sinners in rebellion against our Creator. We need to be reconciled. Our sin has alienated us. We have all sought our own glory. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. And the way of the sinner is very hard. It's very taxing. Leaves us wearied, exhausted, alone, in the dark, in trouble. And yet still, you came. You came down to a broken and twisted and dark world in anguish and agony. You didn't despise us or hold us at arm's length, Lord. You came to save. You came to rescue. You came to deliver. You came to offer true rest and redemption to a people waiting in darkness, to a weary world. We can rejoice because you've sent your son, Jesus. We celebrate that today. We have multiple reminders, even from our culture around this time of the year, but we can get lost in those details. So I pray today we would focus our attention on you, the true answer to our deepest need, Lord. Pray that you would remove any distraction that would take away from us remembering this good news of the gospel this year. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, Luke chapter 2, verse 22, this is after the birth of Jesus. This is after his uh, eight day, he had a circumcision, every Jewish boy would on the eighth day. This is actually the 40th day after his birth. There would be a, a purification ritual Every mother who had a Jewish male after 40 days would have to present him to the Lord. You didn't have to go to the temple, but Mary and Joseph knew this baby was special, and that's where they wanted to go. They wanted to go to God's house. And so we pick up our story there. 
they're on the way, they're new parents, probably teenagers. It's just amazing in, well, every gospel, but especially Luke's gospel, all the people that the Holy Spirit chose to feature in this story are the most unlikely people, the most unlikely people. Two nondescript teenagers from a hole-in-the-wall village, right? You've got shepherds. They were bottom of the economic social ladder. And then you've also got these senior saints, really with one foot in heaven and the other foot in the world that we're going to read about here. So let's pick it up in verse 22. You can read along with me. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they, that is Joseph and Mary, brought him, that is Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Verse 25, now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. That, by the way, that word Simeon means God has heard. God has heard. It would have been a very common name. Whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. Waiting for the consolation of Israel. I'm going to focus on that part of this passage. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. Verse 26, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Kids, how would you like that as a promise? You're not going to die until you see the Messiah. I mean, we, tend to, we would tend to take something like that, take advantage of it, right? What a good time to go bungee jumping. The Messiah hadn't come. Go for it, man. You're good. You're not going to die until you hold this baby in your arms. <laughs> Verse 27, and he came in the Spirit. Three different times the Holy Spirit's mentioned here. Holy Spirit's all over this passage. He came in the Spirit into the temple and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, now just pull the car over there for a second. Here's this couple doing what many, many other couples in Jerusalem would be doing on the 40th day, the rite of purification, coming to the temple. They know there's something special about this child. And then out of the blue, this old man out of nowhere walks up to them. Pick it up in verse 28. He took Jesus up in his arms and he blessed God and he said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. A light for revelation to the Gentiles. It's good news for us in this room. The majority of us anyway. And for glory for your people Israel. And that's for the rest of you, right? Jews and Gentiles, good news. So this was personal for Simeon. You've let your servant see redemption. Now your servant can depart in peace. Now I can die in peace. But also a light and revelation and glory for both the Gentiles and for the Jews. Story's not over yet though. Verse 33, here's another unlikely candidate. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed. That word really means destined. This child is appointed for the rise and fall of many in Israel. So here's a warning. This is the first negative, 
idea about the arrival of Jesus in Luke's gospel. And for a sign that is opposed. So we got this line of demarcation. We got sheep and we got goats. We got belief and unbelief. We got fall and rising. We got opposition, rejection, hostility. It's all predicted right here. He was the first person to predict this in Luke's gospel. And then he turns to Mary, verse 35, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Jesus is going to reveal the thoughts, the hearts, the beliefs, the worldviews of every single person who encounters him. And then here, verse 36, is the other unlikely candidate. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years. That's like a real understatement. Check this out. Having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin and then as a widow until she was 84. So check this out. You were a Jewish young lady. Typically, you get married as a teenager. And then she lived with her husband seven years and then he died. And then she lived 84 years as a widow. So scholars are doing the math here. She's probably 105, give or take. 105-year-old widow here. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of Him to all who were waiting, to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. You know, I love Christmas music. Here's one of the reasons why. Finally, it's music that I can actually remember the words to. I don't know why, I just do. I remember Christmas music and 90s music. The rest, I don't remember. Even my favorite hymns, man. We, were, we had some people at our house the other night and we were singing hymns. And I know the first stanza of every hymn and not the rest. Like the really committed Christians, man, they know the second, third, fourth, fifth stanza. I know some of the first maybe and then that's it. And sometimes not even that. But Christmas music, man, I just remember it better. And here's what I really love about Christmas music. It's deep, rich, glorious, biblical theology that suddenly, for one time in the year, is accessible to everybody. You know, you're shopping at the mall and you hear, uh, the joy to the world, the Lord has come. You know, God and sinners reconciled. What? <laughs> when are you going to hear that at a mall? Christmas, that's when. Well, here is one of my favorite songs. We sang it earlier. It's O Holy Night. And just to give you a little bit of history of that song, not a long one, a short one, okay? It was written in the 1800s, and check this out, man. It was written by a French poet, no surprise there, who was also a wine merchant that may make you like the song more or less, I don't know, uh, but he wasn't even particularly religious. Did you know that? Oh, holy not, how rich and deep these lyrics are, written probably by an unbeliever. <laughs> but back then, man, the you know, you could really depend on the culture a little bit more to do the heavy lifting for apologetics. People knew the basic storyline. People knew the Bible better than a lot of Christians do now. They all knew it. They all read it in their homes. Even unbelievers would read it. And so this guy whose name I can't pronounce, Placide Capéo, I don't know if that's how you say it, he wrote a poem, and check this out. This is the craziest part. He was asked to write a Christmas poem to celebrate the recent renovation of the church organ. That's where, that's where Oh Holy Night, a celebration of the church organ. So that's where this poem came from this, that was given lyrics, uh, or excuse me, given the melody and the music later on. But here is uh, one of my favorite lines from that song. Let's see if I can find it here. 
No, I can't find it, so I'm just going to read it. I was going to put it up on the overhead. O holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of the dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining. That word pining, you don't hear it much anymore. It means this unsatisfied longing that's accompanied by a broken heart. Long lay the world in sin and error pining. And check this out. Till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. I used to think that was a typo and it's supposed to be the soul felt his worth. That's not what it says. This French wine merchant and poet who was an unbeliever knew some biblical theology, didn't he? Till Jesus appeared and the soul felt its worth. Jesus appears and reminds you, you are a, an image-bearing creature, fallen in Adam, but redeemed in Christ, if you believe the gospel, right? A thrill of hope, and then here's this part that we're focusing in on today. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Now, no, I'm not preaching from a Christmas song, but a lot of the Christmas songs take all their theology from the Bible. And you could go all throughout Scripture and you could find this idea of a weary world that's waiting. Waiting usually in agony, waiting in darkness, waiting on the, the precipice of some deep abyss. It's all through the Bible. A world that's in pain. I mean, from the very beginning, when Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit, part of the curse that came upon them was what? Now, he told the man. From now on, you're going to work. Work is not punishment, by the way. You guys know that, right? Work was established before sin, before the fall, before the curse. But do you know what sin did to work? Something that's a purpose for, for, for us, for men especially, right? Do you know what curse and sin did to that? It made it futile. It made it vanity. It made it unfulfilling. And it made it painful. He said, by the sweat of your brow, you're going to get your bread. It's going to be painful. There's going to be conflict at work. And then he talked to the woman. Raising children is going to bring pain and heartache and sorrow. You're going to be exhausted. You're going to, that's the word, right? It's weary. There's this weariness. There's this waiting. Because then the promise came. In Genesis 3.15, he said, look, a deliverer is going to come. And he's going to crush the head of this serpent. And his heel's going to be bruised. So they've been waiting. All throughout the Bible, people have been waiting, waiting, waiting. So we just pick up some of those cues from, from this passage. It's really the end of an era, the end of the Old Testament, the beginning of the New Testament. Here's this faithful couple. They're not together, but this couple of people with one foot in heaven and one foot in the world, and they've been waiting on the Messiah. They've been, they've been waiting. The Bible says, Simeon said he was waiting on the consolation of Israel. That word consolation, it means restoration. It means deliverance. It means hope. It's the same word that we get, uh, you remember Barnabas, one of the apostles, the son of what? Encouragement. That's the same word. Son of encouragement. Second uh, Corinthians 2, blessed be the God of all comfort. It's that same word. Simeon was waiting. He was waiting on comfort. He was waiting on deliverance. He was waiting on hope. He was waiting on rest. And we all have that in common with him, don't we? If we're honest, we're all waiting on something. So here, here's the outline today. The weary world rejoices is the title of the message. And here's point one. Jesus came to a weary world. Say that ten times. <laughs> he came to a weary world in waiting, really. A weary world in waiting. And this passage testifies to that. Anna was waiting for the redemption. Simeon was waiting 
on the consultation. They both were waiting. And when Christ arrived, he came to that world in darkness. It was a weary world that was pining away in sin and pining away in error. The world Jesus entered into was dark. It was oppressed. It was under false teaching. It was under the tyranny of Rome. People were agonizing. There was even apostasy then. People were hopeless. They were in bondage. They were in despair. They had been waiting a very long time. Nothing will wear you out like waiting. Now, not all waiting is bad. My little five-year-old has been waiting on Christmas Day for a long time. And so <laughs> somebody gave us one of those countdowns, right? Man, those things are a blessing and a curse. Every morning he wakes up, I don't know, it feels like 5 o'clock. He's like, how many days? <laughs> and we know we're like three. So this morning he was very happy, one day left on that thing. Not all waiting's bad, but here's where you get exhausted and wearied and depleted and worn out. When you're waiting on things that will never come. Or when your waiting is aimed in the wrong direction. And if we're honest, listen, Christians fall into that too, don't we? We start waiting, we start believing the empty promises, the futile promises of the culture and the society that we live in, whether it's from politicians, whether it's from the self-help section at the bookstore, you start believing those things. And it will wear you out. And I know a lot of people right now for Advent, they do sermons about Christmas is a busy time and everyone's exhausted. That's true, but do you really need to hear that from me? I mean, it's one more day, right? Now, I'm talking about this sermon is for when the New Year's resolutions crash and burn, right? It's when you read those self-help books and you realize, I've been sold a bill of goods. This stuff sounded, something sounded good about it, but it was a half-truth. It had some truth mixed in with toxic lies from Satan. And it will wear you the heck out. Everybody in this auditorium is waiting on something. Waiting can, can wear you out. It will weary you. Maybe you're waiting on the sermon to end. <laughs> Years ago, there was an ad in the New York Times. This is what it said. The meaning of Christmas is that love will triumph. Okay, I'd say it differently, but... And that we will be able to put together a world of unity and peace. Uh, time out. <laughs> Hard pass on that. We will be able? Really? The meaning of Christmas is that we, you and me, we're going to be able to piece a world together, patch this world together of peace and unity. Well, how's that worked out for us? We've had a long time to do it. I mean, when I think of we're going to unite and we're going to do something powerful, I think of the Tower of Babel. That didn't go well. But that's what we've been saying for a long time. People still say it. We're the answer. We're our own hero. And then we try to live up to, to the hype, to the image we project online or whatever that is. We can't conquer the darkness. We can't overcome poverty or injustice or violence or crime or evil or sin. doesn't mean we shouldn't try. We should. But if you're trusting in your own ability... Man, the Scripture has a word for you. Somebody already did that. <laughs> the meaning of Christmas is not that we will be able to put together a world of unity and peace. That's a failed project. The Bible says we can't even tame our tongue. <laughs> Beatrice Webb, many consider the architect of Britain's modern welfare state. She, she wrote this a long time ago. Somewhere in my diary, 1890 maybe, I wrote, I have staked all of the essential goodness 
of human nature. I have staked all on the essential goodness of human nature. Now, 35 years later, I realize how permanent are the evil impulses and instincts in mankind. How little you can count on changing some of those. No amount of knowledge or science will be of any actual avail unless we can curb the bad impulse. Well, she knew what many people don't. We can't change anything. We don't have the power to do that. Christianity does not agree with the optimistic thinkers who claim if we just unite, we can overcome our problems. If we try hard enough, we can fix ourselves. No, we can't. No, we won't. No, we haven't. So why is the world so weary? This is point number two. The effects of sin bring weariness. Now, I'm not saying every single reason you're tired is because of sin, but I can guarantee you this. Every reason that you're tired and depleted and exhausted is a direct or indirect result of sin because we live in a fallen world under the curse. That's why we get sick. That's why we have insomnia. Anybody have insomnia in here? You don't have to raise your hand. I can see you. (laughs) I could not. A little personal for a second. I could not get to sleep last night. I probably slept two hours, man. So if none of this makes sense, I'm justifying myself here. I don't know why. Sometimes your body just breaks. Or maybe it was that two o'clock cup of coffee. I don't know. It was something. I just could not sleep, and I woke up feeling. I'm like, Lord, did you want me to be the personal illustration of this, of this sermon? You just feel wearied. You just can't rest, no matter how hard you try. You go to bed early. You take, you know, melatonin, whatever, Unisom, and it still doesn't work. You just feel weary. Why is that? Do you think Adam and Eve had insomnia? No. Well, yeah, after chapter three, they did, I'm sure. Right? It's because sin brought a curse, and it brought brokenness, brokenness in relationships, brokenness even in our mental health, brokenness in our home, brokenness in the workplace, relational conflict, financial struggles, financial strain. I was watching a podcast the other day, and this guy's a Christian, and he considers himself, and he is, a cultural analyst that gives like a, addresses it through a Christian worldview, a Christian lens. And man, it was, a little, the beginning of it was a little bit scary. Matt, I had to push through, man, listen to that podcast you recommended. Because he was talking about, hey, do you know what 2015, now wait for the ending here, okay, don't get scared. He said 2015 to 2023 was the age of anxiety. Really was. COVID kind of in the middle of that, right? All the stuff that got wrecked, and I won't go into details, just whether it was politics or, you know, political rancor or COVID or whatever else, mass exodus people were talking about from the church, all the societal contracts being broken, young people being disenfranchised, disillusioned, not able to enter the economy, not able to get a home. He went through all that. And he said, but there's a change coming in 2024. We're going from the age of anxiety to the age of anger. Because before people felt like, Something's not quite right. And he said, we're entering into an age when people are going to say, wait, something's very, very wrong. And I'm upset and people don't know how to express their anger or how to handle or manage it. So it's going to be the age of outrage. And he talked about that. Even he talked about something called endo, endopolarization, I think is the word. He said, used to, it would be, you know, politically people on the left would, would debate people on the right. And, you know, people on this side would debate people on this side. He said, now it's going to be endopolarization where... It's conservatives are infighting with each other, uh, and non-conservatives 
are fighting with each other. He said, you can get on a YouTube and watch a clip of Rick Astley, you know, getting Rick rolled, and you can read the comments, and pretty soon it's, you know, Trumpers versus Biden people, or it's woke people versus anti-woke, you know, however you define that. And he was talking about it's, it's infighting. There's, there's such a divide right now. People are so angry, and they don't know how to manage not only their apprehension, but their anger. That's wearisome. That will wear you out and deplete you so badly. But he gave, you know, hope at the end of it. He said, man, Christians are probably right on the threshold of one of the most opportune times for people who are so hopeless and anxious and angry and in agony. They want real answers. They want people who really believe this stuff. They can give them answers. First Peter talks about that, right? Always be ready to give an answer. To give a defense with meekness and with fear. Always be ready for that. He's saying we're about to enter a year where people are going to be asking you. I was reading a, a book last week by Jared Wilson, and it was called Eight Lies About God That Sound Like the Truth. And as I was reading through these, it reminded me of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and Adam and Eve standing in front of that. What must have been going through their head and... and Satan's perverted and twisted lie, how they were processing that. But listen to some of these chapter headings uh, for this book. Eight lies about God that sound like the truth. God just wants you to be happy. Now that sounds true, doesn't it? And in some ways it is. God does want you to be happy, but he wants you to be happy in him, right? So think about what, what Satan must have said to them. They're standing in front of that tree and they're debating. Well, God just wants you to be happy. Go for it. Go for it. That'll wear you out, won't it? Will that make you weary? Perpetually trying to find fulfillment and satisfaction in all these counterfeits? God wants you to be happy. Do that. Oh, it didn't quite work, did it? I mean, Satan, he, he changes his game, man. He's like, it'll be okay. Everybody else is doing it. And then you do it. And he says, you're the worst Christian who's ever lived. Condemnation, shame on you. God just wants you to be happy. Here's one. You only live once. Now, that's true. You only live once. But for Adam and Eve standing in front of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that's not the application you're looking for. You're only, you only live once. Go for it. You deserve this. You deserve this. You need to live your truth. There's another chapter heading. You need to live your truth as if there's, you know, 500 versions of the truth. That will wear you out because your truth's going to change because your feelings are going to change. That's the next one. Your feelings are reality. Can you imagine if you actually believe that, your feelings are reality? How differently do your feelings change throughout the day, let alone your whole life? I was talking to my brother-in-law the other day. He said, bro, I'm a different person than I was in my 20s. We change so often. Our feelings change, and they morph, modify, and they get tweaked. Here's another one. You need to let go and let God. Have you ever tried that? What's enough? <laughs> How do, you, how do you know when you've let go enough? Now, again, there's truth to some of these. There's truth in all of these. But there's also a danger. You believing these things and trying to live them out, and it will wear you the heck out. Here's the last one. God helps those who help themselves. Or, you know, meet God halfway kind of idea. And again, I know there's, a, there's some truth in that. So what makes the world so weary? 
Your own failures can make you weary. The failures of others can make you weary. You can live in cosmic disappointment, anxiety, anger, the news cycle. Broken relationships, sickness, chronic sickness, bad news about sickness. It can just wear you out. Listen to the words of Simeon here in verse 29. He says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Did you pick up on those words? And the the point here is the effects of sin bring weariness. If Simeon is saying, my eyes have seen your salvation, a light for revelation and glory for your people Israel, those three truths presuppose that we're living in darkness, we're living in conflict, we're living in shame, and we're facing judgment. That's the opposite of all those ideas that he introduced there. That brings with it weariness. And then Anna says that coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So redemption, salvation, light, glories, those are just different ways of expressing our greatest need and our, and our deepest problem. We're living under a curse. We've been alienated from God because of our sin. We've all had our own salvation projects going, right? All have turned aside. None are righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fall short of what? The glory of God, because we aim for our own glory, and that's, that wearies us. We've been chasing glory, but not God's. And then here's the last point, and then we'll be on our way, okay? Point number three, weary people can rejoice in Jesus. And that's exactly what Simeon did. He blessed this child. He, he blessed God. He blessed the parents. And Anna blessed God. She's rejoicing. How can, we, how can weary people rejoice? How does that happen? Well, you look to Jesus. He was the rest that was promised. You know, one of my favorite verses, and I probably mention it or quote it every single Sunday in some fashion. Here it is, Matthew 11. It says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. Now, you think Jesus is just talking about a good night's sleep? You think Jesus is saying, hey, I'm the answer to insomnia? That's not what he's talking about. What's he talking about? True spiritual rest. He says, I will give you rest for your souls. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. That's the deepest weariness. That's the deepest depletion. That's the deepest exhaustion that fallen human beings like you and I, and even when we become new creatures in Christ, we still fall back in that. We forget the rest that Jesus offered. We have to come to him daily, cast all of our burdens on him, run the race with him, not our own race. He says, for my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. So, weary sufferers, weary sinners, even weary Christians need to remind ourselves that Jesus came and the wait is over. You know, the greatest thing, I've said this before, the greatest thing that could ever have happened to you has already happened. Jesus died for your sins. And when you believe that and you acknowledge that and you turn from your sin and you trust him, You know, the next greatest event that's coming is Christ is going to return, the second advent. And in a way, we're like Simeon and we're like Anna. We're waiting on that now. We have that hope. We have that 
promised to us from God. I think Simeon and Anna would have been familiar with all the prophecies in the Old Testament. I want to read one here. Isaiah chapter 40. I want to read it because the word weary, faint, and exhausted is mentioned eight different times. Check this out. Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall be exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not grow faint. Isaiah wrote that to people who had been taken captive by foreign, by foreign uh, empires. Babylonians had taken them into exile. And also they had fallen victim to all these idolatries that they had adopted from the pagan nations. And in some ways, we're like them. In the West, in 2023, 2024, we have believed all the counterfeit lies of the enemy. And we're looking to things to give us rest. We're looking to, to things to give us peace. We're looking to things to give us hope. And they're not God. So what they do is they wear us out. That's what idols always do. That's why the Bible uses this language of serving and sacrificing the idols. They make demands and they never, they never give rest. They, they never give you deliverance. They never give you hope. But this prophecy is pointing to the coming one, the coming Messiah, who would be the true rest for Israel. He would give the rest that we all need, that we're all looking for. And how did that happen? It happened through Jesus. He came down. He came down to a weary world in darkness and agony. Listen to this C.S. Lewis quote. In the Christian story, God comes down, down from the heights of absolute being into time and space, down into humanity, down further still, down to the very roots and seabed of the nature he had created. But he goes down to come up again and bring the whole ruined world up with him. One may think of a diver first reducing himself to nakedness, then gone with a splash, vanished, rushing down through green and warm water into black and cold water, down through increasing pressure into the death-like region of ooze and slime and old decay. Then up again, back to color and light, his lungs almost bursting, till suddenly he breaks to the surface again, holding in his hand the dripping precious thing that he went down to recover. And what was that thing he went down to recover? It was us. It was us. Closing illustration here. When I was in seminary in Southern California, a good friend of mine, he was a pilot, and he said, dude, let's go, let's go paddle boating. Our kids were all little, and there was this lake called Lake Balboa. So our families went out there. It was after church. I had on slacks. That's why I hardly ever wear slacks, by the way. Everything in my pockets. I don't know the way I built it. It falls out of my pockets. I lose things all the time. That's why I don't carry a wallet. Anyway, we went on these paddle boats on this lake, and it was a pretty lake on the surface, but it was dark, and it was just kind of disgusting and murky underneath, right? So we got on these paddle boats. We got our kids out there, and we were paddling. Doom, 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 doom. And I heard out of nowhere this noise. Splash. And, and I think it was Kirsten. She said, Daddy's keys. And I was like, oh, man. We were in our minivan. We were miles from home. We were exhausted. And I dropped my stinking minivan keys out of that paddle boat, out of my pocket, and down into the murky water of Lake Balboa. And my friend, who was a pilot, he was just a very innovative person. He was totally optimistic. He said, bro, we're going to go down there and get those. And I'm like, we're? 
I'm like, no, I ain't going down there to get that, dude. You know how many rusty hooks, you know, razor shot, <laughs> I just about nails, all the fish, who knows what's down there, man. Creature from the Black Lagoon, I ain't going down there. He goes, all right, all right, well, listen. He said, I'll go get one of those big magnets that you drag, and we'll drag it. I'm like, Craig, bro, it's a lost cause, man. It's, it's over. We got to call AAA, man. I ain't going down there to get those keys. I'm not doing it. And you're not either. We're not going and buying a dumb magnet. We'll be here 10 hours. And so I had to call AAA. But when I think about that C.S. Lewis quote, and I think of what Christ did, man, just think about this. We sang the song earlier, How Many Kings? Do you, if, if, our, if God would give us just a flash of insight, accurate insight to understand what Jesus sacrificed to come down here to us, I mean, Lake Balboa, the slimy, murky, disgusting water to get a pair of keys because it was a value. What did Jesus do, man, to rescue? What that, that's what the, all the imagery of this groom coming to rescue his fallen bride is about, right? We're the bride who's ran away and soiled herself, right? And Jesus came down into this deep, dark, hopeless, murky, disgusting, sinful, polluted, toxic world to rescue us so that our weariness is over, man, We've been redeemed. We've been delivered. Now we have true hope. Now we can enter into his rest. And remember, as, as we end our time here, remember what Simeon said. This child is destined for the fall and the rise of many. What's he talking about there? Well, you know the Bible gives a warning. It says, be careful to enter his rest. And my question to you, it's Christmas Eve. We have people with us, guests that maybe... Uh, don't go to church every week. I want to issue a challenge to you, a loving challenge. Have you entered the rest of Jesus? Don't harden your heart. Enter the rest of Jesus. This child is, is destined for the rise and the fall of many. And those words, rise and fall, it means this. You continue to live life on your terms and not his and trust in yourself. There's going to be a disaster and a judgment waiting you at the end of your life when you stand before God. But you trust in this Messiah. You trust in Jesus. You enter his rest. And there will be resurrection hope, right? True life, everlasting. This child is destined for the rise and the fall of many. Will you believe? Have you believed the good news that Jesus came to offer you restoration and redemption and forgiveness? No matter who you are, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, Jesus offers you to enter into his rest. It's a wonderful time of the year to remember that. For a sinful, suffering, weak, depleted, exhausted, wearied world, you can rejoice. Just like these subjects, Anna and Simeon, and Mary and Joseph and the shepherds. Good news of great joy for all peoples. A light for the Gentiles and glory for Israel. Have you been a part of that? Have you trusted in Jesus? Have you entered into his rest? Let's take a few moments and think about that and pray and reflect. As our musicians are going to give us a song of, a Selah, a song of reflection. Okay, let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for these truths that we've rehearsed today. Forgive me if, if some of it has been clumsy and hard to understand, Lord. This, it's a simple truth, Lord. We have all gone our own way. Apart from Christ, we are hopeless. This is judgment, your son said, that light has come into the world, but men and women have loved darkness rather than light because the darkness exposes their deeds. Lord, I pray we would come to the light. We would come and find true rest. Jesus, you have never turned away a humble sinner coming in brokenness, coming with confession, coming with honesty.
to admit that the way of the sinner is hard. It leaves us depleted and in a puddle of our own weariness and self-pity. And Lord, you have much better promises than all the false and counterfeit gods and lies that have held us captive. I pray we would come to you today. And for Christians here, maybe this would be a day of renewal to just reminding ourselves that Christmas is not about us creating a world of peace and, and triumph. Lord, you've done that. It's trusting in the one who has and living life at his pace, following Jesus as a true disciple, believing his words, letting his words abide in us. Thank you for this gift every Christmas that we remember the incarnation, Lord. You, you became a man and you suffered and you died and you rose from the grave and you offer rest to all who will come. May we come to you again today. We pray in the mighty and powerful name of Jesus. Amen.